Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's too much news. Not just today, as I record this, or today when you're listening to it. Chances are, pretty much any day, there'll be too much going on and it might be stressing you out. If so you're definitely not alone. But how you react to that feeling of being inundated by modern life, the political choices you make in that state of feeling overwhelmed can be very different depending on your personality. And when the news is just too much to deal with, when it feels like we're besieged by the sheer complexity of it all, there's one group of people who are most likely to turn to populists, nationalists and demagogues for reassurance. They're the authoritarians. Now, I don't mean the leaders who trade in bogus simplicities, the Donald Trumps and Boris Johnsons of this world. We've talked enough about them on past episodes of this podcast. This time, I'm talking about the voters the type of person that is drawn to those leaders. This is Politics on the Couch. I'm Raphael Baer, and this episode is about the authoritarian personality. This can be a delicate subject because, well, lots of reasons. As you'll hear, is the attraction to authoritarians innate, unfixable? That feels a bit gloomy. And if the problem is people struggling to cope with complex issues, what's the polite way to say that maybe, well... One word for that problem is stupidity, but no one ever got elected by insulting voters. And besides, it isn't actually stupid to want politics to be reassuring, to want it to address your basic need to feel safe and to feel like you belong in a world that makes sense alongside people like you. But liberals, moderates, centrists, they sometimes struggle to send those cosy, secure vibes. How can they win over the voters who crave those vibes so much? Navigating me through these issues is Dr. Karen Stenner, a behavioural economist with a PhD in political psychology, formerly of Princeton University, now an independent researcher and consultant. Her seminal book, The Authoritarian Dynamic, was published back in 2005, but it mapped a lot of the trends in Western liberal democracy and the conditions that back then were cultivating an electoral surge towards something like Trump and Brexit. In other words, Dr. Stenner saw it coming. And now that it's here, she's got the analysis, supported by solid data, to help us get out of it. We talked about the kind of messages that can reach out to the authoritarian voters, and the kinds that really don't. 
those that make it worse. Now, I should add that we recorded this conversation when Boris Johnson was still Prime Minister, which means some present tenses are now past tenses. The underlying forces we talk about have not, sadly, changed. It's always possible that the next Tory leader will resist the temptation to exploit authoritarian dynamics and enact some of Dr Stenner's excellent advice for creating a more stable, tolerant and inclusive democracy. It's possible. Maybe not the likeliest scenario. Anyway, Dr Stenner and I talked about left-wing as well as right-wing authoritarians. We talked about the unstable alliance of small-c conservatives who like conserving things and radical nationalists who want to break everything, and how that coalition can unravel. We took a detour via the interesting recent election in Australia, where Dr Stenner is from. But before we got onto that, I asked her to clarify how we exactly measure and identify an authoritarian personality and how many of them there are out there. Pretty consistently right across liberal democracy, and I've looked at a lot of data for a long time, about a third of the population is typically scores authoritarian predisposition. And this is using something sort of what I call a really bare bones measure of authoritarianism, because you don't want a measure that's full of references to criminals, deviants and dissidents, because that's then tautological. So it just it's a chart called a child rearing values measure. And it simply asks people, is it more important that a child is curious or obeys his parents? Is it more important that a child is independent? Etc. So you just present them with a series of paired value choices because the relationship between parent and child is our first experience of authority. That's how we come into the world and that's our first experience of authority and people's conception of that. And it's not measuring how they were um, raised themselves and it's not measuring how they're raising their own children even. Uh, those correlations are actually quite weak. It's just their conception of the appropriate relationship between group authority and individual autonomy. And you're doing it in a really in, in this familial environment without references to political and social structures um, and people sort of are able to deliver in those circumstances a really fundamental sense of their, their orientations towards authority. And that proves to be a really great predictor of their attitudes towards all manner of things and of when and why those things will be most heated in political conflict. So it's a really great predictor of lots of things, including real world behaviours. One of the things that you know, I think is more challenging to me as a, a sort of broadly liberal consumer of, of these ideas is that then the following conclusion you draw that these are quite innate characteristics. And, and is, I think it's worth talking about distinguish between personality and the way it's casually used in the sense of what type of vibes you get off someone, essentially, and a set of cognitive sort of traits that are baked in enough that in politics we have to accept that they are out there in the population and not going to change. It's about a third of all people who have this personality. Does it concern you that that sounds a bit sort of fatalistic? You know, when essentially, certainly since the 1960s, there is a sort of a sociological liberal consensus that you can construct your own personality, you can change yourself and be something different. I would say don't distinguish it from your normal conception of personality. It's exactly the same thing. You can think of it as a political personality. And what we understand about the people in our lives is they really do come into the world a particular kind of person with a particular way of responding to things, particular preferences for you know their environment, for the way in which they engage with other people. It's very fundamental. And authoritarianism is the same thing. Um, the evidence, you know, sort of you're saying, do I sort of worry that it sounds fatalistic? I actually gave up a long time ago sort of trying to sort of work through the normative implications of it because it was much more urgent to help people understand what the empirical evidence was, which is, you know, studies of identical twins reared together and apart, which is the gold standard 
for separating out the influence of nature and nurture consistently shows that about half the variance in authoritarianism is explained. Basically, it's heritable. And that doesn't mean the other half of the variance is education and upbringing, uh, because most of the other variance is unexplained. So a very large chunk, at least half of the variance in why we end up the way we are on this sort of authoritarianism kind of personality is explained by heritability. And that's just the reality. And there isn't any other way around that. And so if you accept that, and there's, you know, there's lots of different studies with lots of different sort of protocols that come up with the same answer about the strength of that. If you accept that, then what becomes, you know, sort of really pressing is understanding that if people really are just the kind of human being they are and we keep placing them in a vibrant modern liberal democracy uh, full of cacophony and dissent, you know, multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious, you know, all of those things. If we keep placing them in this environment and diversity, not, ex, you know, not even just expecting them to live with it, but to celebrate and applaud all of those things like the rest of us do and to constantly be exposed to that, that actually doesn't bring out their best selves. That brings them to their most intolerant extremes. So that's the most important thing is if you don't understand this reality, the things that you're doing in a Fukuyama kind of mind mindset of sort of bringing people sort of people evolving in this sort of linear way towards being more perfect liberal democratic citizens, the things that you're making them experience and the things that you're throwing at them and asking them to applaud and celebrate, those are exactly the things that will bring out their worst selves. I mean, you mentioned Fukuyama there and that's exactly sort of raises the next thing I really wanted to ask, putting this in context, because the Fukuyama hypothesis, the end of history that we sort of essentially solved ideological questions with a nice steady state Mm -hmm. liberal democracy. I mean, it's been rebutted and argued around a lot. And I think people listening to this podcast probably familiar with that and how it was a construct that emerged in the sort of post-Cold War 90s and then sort of unraveled in the ensuing decades. But it creates a lot of confusion about what the difference between, on the one hand, conservatism as a resistance to change, but which could, is also be, can also be about preserving institutions and an established order, and authoritarianism, which I think from the 60s onwards, people associated this part of conservatism, but can also revel in destruction and changing the established order if there's a promise of, of something better in the future. And, and that, it, that's quite a complex interaction because it's not necessarily intuitive that authoritarianism and conservatism can be antithetical. But actually, again, you've written something saying there's quite a strong negative correlation between economic conservatism and an authoritarian personality. Or have I misunderstood that? No. So across, across cultures, There's a modest, I wouldn't call it strong, a modest negative association between authoritarianism and support for the free market. So, you know, like, and that to me makes logical sense that the same people who want the government not to interfere in, you know, economic affairs don't want to be sticking their nose in people's moral choices and in, you know, their political opinions. So if you have sort of a very consistent sort of stance on all of those things, um, that's just sort of the, you know, it's, it's weakly or modestly depending upon, you know, what the, the sample of countries is uh, related to authoritarianism in regard to uh, stat- what I call status quo conservatism, sort of uh, objection to change. It's modestly, uh, sort of weakly to modestly, positively related, really sort of um, contingent relationships. So um, you've probably heard the argument that I make, and I make this quite a lot because it seems to help a lot of people understand the difference between status quo conservatism and authoritarianism. And again, that's really important for 
people to get their head around if they're going to sort of understand the way in which we have to behave toward and around and for authoritarians in order to make them capable of living in liberal democracy. So if you think of conservatism as an aversion to change and change is difference over time, authoritarianism is aversion to complexity, which is difference across space. You know, so often slowing down the rate of change reduces the amount of diversity and, you know, et cetera. Allowing more diversity increases the pace of social change. So often those things go together and you find that these characters are, are modestly associated. And that's what it looks like in the data. But there's critical conditions in society. There's critical historical turning moments when status quo conservatives are an authoritarian's strongest bulwark against the dangers posed by authoritarian social movements. They will not want to, as authoritarians do, overthrow established institutions and norms, you know, charge down the shining path towards the greater future of oneness and sameness. They're not on board for authoritarian revolutions. They're opposed to change. They like stability. Um, they're not going to overthrow a democracy that's working well. The authorities are managing the extent and degree of, con- you know, the extent and type of conflict. The institutions are working. People are respecting the norms. They won't overthrow that status quo order for a chance to charge down the path towards greater oneness and sameness. So they're not on board for the fascist revolution. And in practical terms, you know, we're talking about in the UK context, your sort of conservative MPs like David Gork or someone like you know, Rory Stewart, who are Tories classically, but against Brexit. And I mean, they were, turned out not to be a very effective bullock, but they did stand up to it. And in the US, the, the Lincoln Project, the sort of the, the never Trump Republicans, who again, have sort of, they sort of failed, but they, it was important that they were there. If we zoom straight back out, to the sort of political macro and and I want to stay there or come back to that zone in a bit, but it's probably worth a little detour back into the sort of the micro personality point, just to be clear about if these are uh, personality traits that are activated by certain political movements, but what as personality behaviours are we actually talking about in terms of an authoritarian personality? But I think it's really useful to be clear about that distinction between not wanting change and feeling actually sort of existentially threatened by the celebration of difference or or, or diversity? Mm -hmm. What is it that people are experiencing sort of cognitively? So authoritarians basically look out at the world and um, want to see oneness and sameness is the easiest way to describe it. And, you know, that's different from what a, you know, a true conservative will be going if, if there's a diverse if there's a stable, diverse liberal democracy that's functioning well, they're not in interest of turning, overturning that. They can tolerate diversity and complexity if it's constrained by authorities and institutions and everything's stable and good. But an authoritarian looks out at the world and, and wants to minimize difference in all of its forms. So that's racial and ethnic diversity, that's political difference, and that's moral difference. So in the end, what you find is it's strongly associated with everything across those domains. So it, racial and ethnic diversity, So intolerance of and discrimination, prejudice towards domestic racial and ethnic minorities, attitudes towards uh, immigration, isolationism, wanting to keep the outsiders out, not liking strangers, uh, being xenophobic, all of those things. And immigration obviously is the flashpoint issue in that domain now. Political difference, uh, really, um, you know, anti-free speech, wanting to have more constraints on the media, pro-censorship, et cetera, uh, you know, disliking, you know, dissenters. Um, and dissidents, um, you know, sort of wanting to suppress free speech, basically, um, minimize, you know, what people can say about leaders, you know, 
people who are really upset at the critique of leaders. And that's, you know, the heart of liberal democracy is mocking, ridiculing and critiquing leaders and overthrowing one for the next. And that's really a strange concept for someone who's genuinely authoritarian. Yeah, in the political domain, they want less, you know, less overturning of leaders and less discussion of issues and a whole lot less noise in the political realm. But those things are activated under conditions of threat. So I'll let you jump back in because I interrupted you there. But um, I wanted to talk about how those things are actually activated and when we'll see those those behaviors become more manifest yeah and i definitely want to talk about you know what you describe as the authoritarian dynamic the the as you say the environment the crucible that allows these things to kind of boil over but before we come to that i mean i was struck by something you said there about aversion to criticism of, of the leader i had this sort of immediate flashback to all the arguments i used to have with supporters of jeremy corbyn and when he was leader of the labor party how sort of challenging it was for the British left to understand to take on board the critique that what they had been captured by, it seemed, was a type of authoritarianism because they were thinking, well, no, we're the left and you know, Jeremy, he's the dear leader and he's against all forms of racism. By definition, uh, the exact antithesis of racism and fascism because he's a true socialist. So how can you say we're populist and, and authoritarian? And it's so it, that, that left element of it seems to me to be sort of under-recognized because we're so used to in the last 10 years or five or six years pushing back against incumbent authoritarianism that we don't really examine it in, in opposition. That's right. So left-wing authoritarian, and this is again something that people find really difficult to come to terms with. It's just the idea of right-wing is just so associated with you know the things that we typically think of on that side of politics, intolerance of, of moral deviance and racism and so forth. And precisely because, as I described before, neither three neither free market conservatism nor status quo conservatism are strongly associated with authoritarianism. So if course, they can be completely orthogonal, they can be completely disassociated, and you can have all various combinations of that for that reason. And so it's possible to be a left-wing authoritarian in a few different senses. Uh, the combination of being left-wing on the economy and right-wing on social moral issues is actually really common, common in the UK, common in Australia, common in, in the US, and that's the underserved market segment that the fascists and the, you know, the authoritarian leaders are picking up because... Yeah, right, that's the that's basically the socialism and national socialism, right? Yeah, we're not willing to service that, right? And so yeah. by being unwilling to service that, it's being serviced by someone else. So that's a really important lesson for, you know, progressive lefts sort of uh, parties and movements to understand is there's a great demand for, you know, and you can imagine, you know, those things go together naturally. People who are in favor of strong governmental intervention, redistribution, et cetera, equality is a form of oneness and sameness. And they're very, you know, happy with, you know, government control and coercion and redistributing wealth. So there's nothing antithetical there at all. It's a comfortable fit. But those left-wing, you know, sort of think of what's used to be called working-class authoritarianism. Those left-wing on the economy attitudes uh, are often associated with being socially, morally conservative and often, frankly, outright what people will call racist. And so people worry about, well, we don't want to appeal to those people because definitely we don't want racists in the party. But it's differencism. And I try and get people to see that it's differencism. And if you stop asking them to tolerate so much difference, they can be their best selves. And so it doesn't naturally end up in racism. It often does because of the circumstances in which they're placed. But if you um, basically think of people having a limited tolerance for difference, and if you fill that up with racial and ethnic sort of diversity, they don't have much room left for, you know, political and moral deviance and vice versa. And so it's possible to appeal to 
what people will, you know, on the surface call racist, but what I would call differences, is possible to appeal to them without racism. But you sound kind of racist, right? So without the racism, if that makes sense, and I'm just trying off the top of my head to think of your sort of community, nation, being proud to be British, all of those kinds of things. You can do all of that without, you know, diverging into racism and people have to be willing to go there if they're going to attract those people back to the party. And this is a massive fault line on the liberal left and, and it, it, which has, comes up time and time again, which is when uh, a moderate Labour or Republic or Democratic in the US leader wants to reach out to the voters they've lost in quotes left behind or the, the sort of the Reagan Democrats, that segment, what we used to call the old Labour right here. And as, a, as an addendum, just supporting what you just said, actually, you look at some of the rhetoric from the beginning of the trade union movement, right at the beginning of the 20th century, a lot, there was a lot of talk about you know, protecting the labour market from foreign interlopers, and which is flagrantly racist by, by modern uh, judgment, mm-hmm. but it was in, intrinsic to the left. But when you any attempt that's made to try and recapture that terrain, you know, when when Keir Starmer tries to do it, it there's a liberal, ultra liberal segment of the left that will say, um, "Well, you're just wrapping yourself in a flag. You're co-opting the language of the right. You're basically complicit now in what is essentially a racist narrative." And then, so it's checkmate. You can't. How can you articulate? These things, and mm. I mean, we're, we're, we're getting towards you know, really get this question of the authoritarian dynamic. But before I properly disengage with that concept, this ongoing gut feeling about the way left authoritarianism in this country has worked, and I'd be interested to sort of, as it were, test my hypothesis on your expertise here. I have a, a feeling that what we see. In, which we saw it with, with Jeremy Corbyn leading the Labour Party and that the wider sort of left populist narrative about the wicked you know, 1% that colonises that all the resources and, and excludes everyone else uh, and evil corporates who are only driven by profit. Enough of that language is resonant with the people who actually end up voting for the right that what you get is a kind of left authoritarianism that sort of tenderizes the stake of the of an electoral opinion that can then get grilled and eaten by the right so they don't have enough the left leaders don't have enough reach to actually win but their rhetoric sort of infuses and feeds a right-wing coalition of uh, right nationalism that then can be grabbed by conservative parties and leaders and turned into a majority for government. Does that make sense? It does. And the left just has to be willing to provide a better version of that. And the better version of that is like a positive, constructive nationalism that talks about, you know, we look after our own people first. You can say things like that, right? We look after everyone first. We're not going to leave anyone behind. We're all in this together. You know, all the oneness and sameness vibe, you know, nobody gets left behind, you know, proud to be British. Take the central elements of the culture and the values that people are proud of. And I, I was uh, talking about the Australian election recently, there's a really core Australian value of fairness. And the Labor leader who has won recently won government the last few weeks did a really good job of doing this, nobody left behind, all moving forward together, united as one, and went into all these places with the right sound, the right resonance and the right language. Like you just have to make it feel right. On the surface, most of us agree with most things. And there's just a vibe that you need to create basically, to to win over the authoritarians. And, you know, a lot of that 
you know, if you don't immediately assume these people are racist, and you shouldn't immediately assume that, and under the right conditions they aren't, if you don't immediately assume that, you can deal with differences and much more comfortably and with an open mind and an open conscience, and you just say, what do we have to say to these people to bring them on board? What do we have to do to make them feel comfortable? And honestly, if you look at the US and you see the worst of the MAGA movement and try to understand what's going on there, you know, they have rallies, they have uniforms, they have songs, they have dances, they have chants that they call out in response. You know, it's like a call and response thing in church. They're having a group identity experience. They're having an usness. They're having a oneness and sameness. And until left-wing progressive parties are willing to do that kind of thing without feeling embarrassed or um, evil, they can't win over the people who need that thing. And you have to believe that there are people who need that thing and they're never going to stop needing that thing. And someone's going to be meeting that need if you aren't. And you better get organized to basically make the right sounds and you know, create the right vibe and, you know, invoke the right values. And I recommend, I do a lot of political consulting and I always recommend find the core values in your culture that everybody, regardless of their side of politics, resonates to. And then find a way of talking about what you want to do in the electorate, find a way of talking about that in ways that access and use those values and that resonate with the right kind of vibe. And the right kind of vibe is dignity, security, respect, honour, strength, etc. There's just a particular language that you need to be using. You can message climate change by talking about, oh, you've got to believe, you've got to love the planet, you've got to, you know, love. The left always goes for caring, loving, etc. And you always have to believe in our values. And there's no necessity for that. It's not a religious conversion. And you can instead talk about climate in terms of risk and risk management. You don't even need to believe that there's climate change, let alone man-made climate change, to know, well, there's something crazy going on with the weather and probably things would be a lot better if we weren't sort of burning as much fossil fuels and shooting as many emissions into the universe. And so you just need to sort of speak in those terms, risk management, you know, what a normal conservative person would do is try to anticipate and manage risk. And nobody goes there because they want to have the religious conversation about we love the planet and and loving and caring and sharing and et cetera, protecting the weak and vulnerable. And those things just don't resonate at all for the other side. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. 
But I'm sensing there a bit of a tension then between the need to sort of satisfy this very essentially primal, you know, humans are, are tribal you know, beings that we've evolved to, you know, out of in a sort of concentric circles of loyalty from family to small tribe to larger tribe. And then you get to this point where we're living in these vast um, multicultural, multi-ethnic, globalized places, cities, countries, people feel threatened. And so the politics that animates their sense of belonging and oneness feels hugely attractive. And you just, you know, you talk about those those MAGA rallies uh, and the, actually the, the cultural social dynamic in the you know, Corbyn rallies, although albeit with fewer people, was was very much the same. And so, if you're you, you want a kind of a moderate liberal centre left or whatever project to be doing that, but then at the same time, in order to to win, you you then find yourself talking about the opposite, which is just being reassuring, moderate, looking professional. You're not going to have great chaos. And you know, I'm glad you, re- you mentioned the Australian election because my understanding of the the Albanese proposition, a bit like the Biden one, was he just managed to be sufficiently unthreatening and not the kind of, uh, for want of a better word, ardent, woke left that was going to serve the conservatives and persuade the you know, the people who are propping up Scott Morrison that they were safer with him. So did, did, is there that tension there between you know, winning through moderation, but also being sufficiently evangelical that you give people something to believe in? I don't think there's a contradiction. I think I think the critical thing that's going on in, in sort of dynamically underneath that is the core of the authoritarian sort of, you know, electoral strategy is make people angry and afraid. And then they will want to choose a strong leader who wants to use the full authority of the state to bring people into line. And so you're constantly trying to work with fear and anger. And the thing is, and this is the key to basically turning this on itself, is you can't just be constantly inviting people to fear and anger because what they want is not to think about politics. And I can't emphasize this enough. You know, we were talking about politics before, cacophony, dissent, leaders being ridiculed and overturned. The last possible thing they want to be thinking about is politics, anathema to them. And you're making them constantly f- afraid and angry and constantly attending to vigilant to politics. The best thing you can do, you know, I say, always say that, you know, there's a great slogan, which is let's make politics boring again. You know, the best thing you can do is actually make them so calm and reassured that they go home and they don't want anything to do with politics. That's what they would choose in normal, comfortable, reassuring conditions. So the problem that Scott Morrison and many others in that kind of um, electoral strategy run into is you can't just be constantly inviting people to fear and anger and not satisfying that with security and, and sureness, right? You can't do that. And what at the, at the same time that the Liberals had just been running constant fear and anger and not assuaging that in any way, not delivering the calmness at the other side. Anthony Albanese was doing this all in it together, you know, bring everyone along. I'm going to look after everyone. It's going to be fine. You know, we're all Australians. We believe in fairness, all of that kind of stuff. And you actually create what I call an alternative normative order, an alternative comforting sense of oneness and sameness, which is this other team over here doesn't make me 
angry and afraid all the time and they said they're going to look after everyone and everything will be okay. And in particular, I don't have to constantly be scanning and monitoring the news every day to figure out what's happening. I'll just go back to my church group and, you know, my hobbies and, and leave politics behind, which is what they would actually choose. Right, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the alternative normative order there because that is central to this, you know, the more practical question that will whether, whether sort of practice meets the theory of neutralizing, I think we describe as the normative threat that that makes people gravitate towards populist nationalist leaders because their authoritarian personality is activated. That's the dynamic you talk about. That said, we'll just, it might be worth unpacking what are the qualities of that threat that, that you can, once you've understood that, then you can start thinking, well, what is it that alternative politics would be able to do to tunnel underneath that threat and offer some reassurance, different order? I gave you my colloquial definition of authoritarianism as someone who has an unusual investment in oneness and sameness. They really need oneness and sameness. And you can think of preferred processes, which is group authority versus individual freedom and preferred, you know, end states, which is conformity versus diversity. All right. So think of it. And so I think of that oneness and sameness. And that involves excessive groupiness, you know, group authority versus individual freedom and excessive differencism, right? So conformity versus diversity. And so to think about what threatens these people, you have to think about what are the threats to those things. And the threats to oneness and sameness, the threats to group authority and conformity are loss of confidence in and respect for leaders and institutions. That's the oneness and a loss of a sense of shared identity and values, which is the sameness, right? And those are the the critical things. And you'll hear me talking about some things with what seems like absurd confidence, but I have manipulated normative threat and reassurance in a thousand different ways over the last 20 years. And it is the critical thing. And that, that activates authoritarians. What it does is it increases the expression of their predisposition. So you need to think of it as a latent predisposition, um, which under normal reassuring circumstances, they might just be a kind of interfering nosy neighbor. And someone who's heavily involved in, you know, church group or whatever. Keep blaspheming the church group. But under normal circumstances, reassuring circumstances, that's what they are. But activated by conditions of normative threat, they express racism and intolerance under those conditions. Um, and, you know, the last 10 years of social media have been a constant diet of normative threat you know, attacking leaders, you know, undermining institutions. I mean, you think about the loss of confidence in institutions in the UK and the US, it's just phenomenal. And loss of sense of shared identity and shared values. No one agrees on anything anymore. We lost the things that made us great. You know, who are we? All of those kinds of identity things. Are those are the conditions that activate people with authoritarian predisposition and increase the expression of their predisposition in these manifestly intolerant attitudes and behaviours. And that really gets to the heart. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned social media and technology because the, the capacity to have your sort of nose rubbed in an interpretation of your country and your history feels like an existential affront. It is very high on the internet, mm. you know, and, and it's interesting. I mean, that is strikes me as one of the most challenging parts of the project to offer a, an alternative normative order. On, on the liberal side, I'm thinking about the, the coming back to the task Keir Starmer has if he wants to become prime minister of this country. When you have a situation where there's a large 
section of your own party and your own base that thinks waving your national flag is a, a signal of sort of far right sympathy or at least a celebration of atrocities that were perpetrated in the name of your country. It doesn't take much of that on Facebook for your rivals, for the government to take those expressions of that view and wave them under the noses of their voters and go, look, these people, they basically hate your country, they hate your flag, they hate your history. How you narrate an idea of the larger us, how you grow the sense of who we are from that sort of moderate centre liberal perspective without getting tangled up in rival and now increasingly incompatible narrations of where we've come from as a country, that strikes me as, as the single hardest bit of this. Like, How do you turn mm-hmm. what are now such polarised conceptions of of the past into a shared idea of the future. And in the US, it looks like you've got two nations, effectively. I really don't know how you narrate that anymore. I worry that it's heading towards essentially a kind of civil war. Mm. So I think uh, one of the things you have to do is basically find some way of talking about the past, people with this tendency that you're describing, um, that don't make everyone feel like criminals, right? So so have a conversation where you're talking about recognizing in some kind of language that everyone agrees on that mistakes have been made and we haven't always been proud of what we've done, but that we've come back to our core values and we've learned critical things from the mistakes that we made. That's the critical thing. And so now we're we're British and we've done things and what British people do is when they make a mistake, they acknowledge it and they own up to it, they fess up to it and they, you know, take responsibility. So you find some kind, I'm just making this up, you find some kind. No, but that's great. I mean, that is exactly why has no one said that yet. I mean, this is called, well, you and others, but no, I mean, I because it makes everyone uncomfortable on the left side of politics. It makes everybody really uncomfortable to even start sounding like that. And what I'm saying really fundamentally and repeating myself, you have to be willing to go there and you have to be willing to sound like that. And it's basically saying we're British. We take responsibility for our mistakes and we've learned from them and we're going to be going forward together and we're going to be doing a better job of living up to the values of being British. Think about how to, how to frame what everyone describes as the core values of being British. Stiff up a lip, don't get sort of carried away, don't think too much of yourself, etc. You know, sort of carry on regardless. Yeah, live and let live. Strikes me now, for example, that when you're in this sort of decrepit, decaying stage of the Johnson government, where they've got nothing left you know, in terms of a practical program, because Brexit didn't do what it was supposed to and, and various other things, that they are exactly in that zone that you mentioned earlier of being now reliant on mining ever deeper into the grievance and having to keep kind of poking the embers of the rage that got them elected in the first place and blowing on that as hard as they can to reignite that fire. Uh, and I don't know whether it works, but it strikes me there is an opportunity there for Keir Starmer to say, that that's not who we are. We don't need to yeah, why, why, why do you want us all to be hating each other? I don't hate you. I just think we can disagree about politics, which leads to a, a, the sort of different question about coming back to what you said at the beginning about resistance to complexity. Part of that account of that there's a better way of doing things has to involve engaging with that these are hard problems to solve. You've been very good in things you've written and said before about you know treading this fine line between saying, look, part of the authoritarian personality, a component of it is a kind of cognitive resistance to the difficulty of the issues. Partly, I think there is a a top-down active politics of kind of stupefaction that cultivates that cognitive incapacity Mm -hmm. by saying that Brexit is a perfectly good example where you say, look, there is a there is this one word that can contain so many different things that we can offer to you. Mm -hmm. uh, And 
you know, when your rivals say, do you have any idea how technically difficult it's going to be to disentangle the UK from the EU? What they're actually doing then is activating exactly that normative mm. threat. They're saying this is so complicated, you know, stupid racist, like you would never understand it. Leave it to the professionals. Don't trust me. Don't go there. Mm. No wonder people voted for Brexit, right? So sorry, this is a very long winded question, but is the challenge to just come up with better simplicities or is the challenge as we're sort of coaxing people into accepting complexity. They're two different tactics. A. No, really. A, not B. Yeah, no capacity for B. I mean, this is, I can't express this any more clearly. And, and this is only increasing, right? So if you think about the kind of person that I've described, and we don't have to be derogatory about it. There's just an average distribution of human intelligence. And some people are more intelligent than others. And we wouldn't normally mock, you know, people with learning disabilities or limited capacities or other kinds of whatever. We're not allowed to do that, but somehow we're all out, allowed to laugh at the people with, you know, lesser intelligence. It's just, there's just a, there's an average human capacity and that average human capacity is no longer coping with the complexity of the things that we're building for them economically, socially, politically, NFTs, you know, how do I work Snapchat? You know, what the hell does any of this mean? And, you know, how come my, you know, seven year old grandson can operate the TV, but I can't. And I'm, this is not, a, you know, it sounds stupid, but it's not. People have a limited ability to deal with complexity. And it's being constantly filled up. They're completely topped out and they have no room, no capacity left for, you know, going to talk to me about the Irish border, you know, and the implications of the Brexit thing, what's going to happen with Ireland. And he said this and she said this and I've got no freaking idea. And is Ireland even part of the UK? I don't understand the Irish thing. It's just like it's way too much. And people on our side of politics don't mix enough with people outside our side of politics to even know how challenging it is for most people to get through their day, right? And I really mean that. There's a wall of noise for them every day and they're, you know, they're drowning in it. And you want to throw yak, yak, yak about Brexit on top of it, make them feel shitty for the choice that they made, make them feel like the enemy and no one's ever going to forgive us unless we, you know, be a culprit and confess our sins and whatever. There's so much religious zeal to it. And at some point you just have to say, you know, whether we, you know, whether this was the right or the wrong thing to do, we need to look forward. It's this day forward. We need to figure out how, you know, as Britons, we're going to live and, you know, live and let live and get along together and look after one another. And, you know, one of the things I constantly recommend is, Guaranteed minimum income. I'm, I'm just a, you know, a broken record on this. Um, security of income, security, you know, job guarantee and income security. Those things take so much of the heat out of complexity. If people know they have a home and they know they have a job, you know, and that's not difficult to achieve. And if you take modern monetary theory seriously, those things are actually good for the economy. Capitalism works best when you have a secure workforce and everybody's housed and fed and everyone has spending power and not living on the edge of, you know, poverty, things work better. Like, so, you know, a healthy welfare state and things like guaranteed minimum income and job, job, uh, guaranteed job, those things actually help capitalism work better. So there's a lot of intersection there that's, that people could be working with. And instead we're just having endless fights about the cultural stuff over and over again. That was the proposition that, that uh, surprisingly for a lot of people beat um, Churchill in 1945, because Labour were actually saying, "Look, we just had a war; it's been chaos, but you know we're going to. You know, there will be jobs. There will be a health service that will look after you." I love this idea of there's just sort of the, a bucket of capability to deal with how complex the world is, and it just gets filled up. And you use 
in, in things you've written this very important word, I think, overwhelmed. Mm. People, it's just it's overwhelming the sheer scale of it. And and it seems that you can't avoid the, the question of technology in this just because that there is, again, this, this sort of duality here where on, on one hand we're talking about an innate characteristic. There have always been authoritarians. If you want to organize a democratic society, you've just got to accept that a third of your population quite like the authoritarian aspect of it. And you have to sort of work around that and be make your democracy sort of accommodating in some way to that. That is constant, more or less. Uh, and then also something happened around the turn of the millennium where we invented this giant machine that absolutely atomizes people's sense of the world they live in. And they're tribe has been kind of penetrated all around by just mm-hmm. difference and change and dynamics that are absolutely guaranteed to, to give them the most overwhelming sense of normative threat. And so is there is is there a sense, you know, when you look at the data, when you look at your research, that what's happening now is just because of the technology or other things qualitatively different to anything that's come before and therefore actually something that democracy is properly imperiled by in a way that it might not have been in the, in the second half of the 20th century. So it's an incredible threat to national security and world peace. There's no question. And just accelerating, you know, pace of technological change. Like this, you know, you said before, you know, is this really what we have to deal with? It's just this is only increasing. The thing that I've already described is just rapidly increasing. If you think about the, the potential technologies and what, you know, how things are going to change and the, you know, the extent to which people are hammered constantly with this mediated sort of understanding of their world. You used to just experience your own world. What you could see when you were walking out of your door and around your little village was your world. And, you know, TV obviously changed that. And then the internet has changed that by a factor of whatever. You know, it's just, you see, Everything. And I used to sort of laugh about every woman in the world is you know, oppressed by supermodels, right? By the, this handful of genetic freaks, the, the most attractive people in the world. Everybody else is oppressed by that, you know, because you know, now ordinary looking people have no esteem, no sort of market value at all because everyone thinks that's what women are supposed to look like. And it's similar to, you know, it's similar to the world we're constructing for ourselves now, which is, you know, people are constantly being hammered with just a huge diversity of humanity and a huge array of ideas and an, an enormous array of what's happening in the world today. And, you know, Bangladesh is doing this and, you know, flooding in Northern India and, you know, the things that become part of our world there, it's a mediated world, but it's still being thrown at us all day long. It is way too much for people to process. And so at the very least, you need to be thinking about that as a national leader, that you need to be providing something that's a cons- what I call a constructive nationalism that's focused on something that's easier for people to manage and that that gives them very comforting experiences uh, that make people feel like they belong to something, that make f- people feel like they have a leader they can respect, make them trust the institutions. This is why corruption is yep. so corrosive. Um, Corruption of institutions and loss of confidence in leaders. These are some of the worst things that can happen. Um, and, you know, just the unwillingness of, of the left progressive side of politics to allow any kind of reaching at, you know, national identity or, or sense of national values and things that we share. And just, just not being allowed to have conversations like that is, is part of what drives people. You know, when people talk about political correctness and how much that bothers them, they're really just saying, I'm trying to work through this stuff and you won't even let me talk about it. And this guy over here, this MAGA guy, let's, you know, he just stands up and says it. And that's so comforting, right? That's so comforting, reassuring to people who are trying to process complex issues. And someone just gets up and goes, yeah, 
show all Mexicans are rapists, you know, build the wall. Um, that's just, you know, straightforward, simple. And he said it and he was allowed to say it, you know, hallelujah, somebody said it out loud. So I'm not saying we shouldn't have constraints around what people are allowed to talk about, but we've pulled them in into such a narrow range that a whole bunch of things that used to be okay for people just to talk out loud about to try and process how they felt about things and get, you know, seek answers and get answers. We're not even allowed outside of that range. There's there's real issues that people can talk about in regard to trans rights. There's just real things that are to be, you know, talked about in regard to the pace, um, you know, the rate of immigration, the sources of immigration, what societies need to do to help integrate immigrants, what societies look like when they have this sort of multicultural sort of intake of, of immigrants as opposed to, you know, one of the things Australia has tried to do, and I'm not saying this, I'm proud of this, is, you know, be much more careful about, you know, the, the sources of, of, of immigrants. And, you know, we have this policy where people win points for, for you know, having certain qualities and those points are easily sort of manipulated to sort of favour people who are the right colour and the right race, the right religion. So that's, that's no secret. We have quite a racist immigration policy. But, you know, people just need to you know, talk about people on the left will congratulate themselves about how they live these lives of complexity and diversity. But for most people on our side of politics, the truth is you, just like everyone else, are seeking oneness and sameness. And you're all liking to surround yourself by people who are very similar to yourself. They might be different races and ethnicities, but they'll be similar levels of education and similar political oh. and social attitudes. And you're congratulating yourself just because people are a different color, which is so superficial. Whereas lots of people that you're mocking and ridiculing and critiquing because they don't have the right attitudes towards immigrants are living in communities where whole chunks of the community speak different languages and there are cultural clashes and there are difficulties that people are experiencing and they're not even allowed to talk to them about them to the extent that they could actually be asking the government, should there be more support behind language learning? Should we be insisting that people have to, you know, blah, 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 learn a language, you know, um, train for occupations in this part of the country, we need more help with whatever, maybe we should be subsidizing people to be trained in, you know, these occupations. There's no way in which anyone's allowed to have the conversation about what does it take to integrate well. There's an important distinction here as well between the idea of taboo concepts and ideas behind that, the, the policing of specific terms and language, because I think something that often comes up on, on the left you know, or a left sort of rebuttal to the point you've just made would tend to be, oh, come off it. You know, what do you mean? You're not allowed to talk about immigration. British politics hasn't talked about anything else for the past 30 years. And they would say, you know, how, how is it not the case that you're not allowed to say these things? People, you know, Nigel Farage was saying nothing else, et cetera, et cetera. And we, I know that argument, what that sort of expression misunderstands and, and in support of what you've just said, there is a feeling that even if you are allowed to have this conversation, there is an unstated arrogance on expressed by the the sort of the liberal gatekeepers of the discourse to say but you have to say it certain ways and i i imagine that when people say that this this particular term or this particular word is taboo and unusable that must stimulate so much cognitive threat to a lot of people mm -hmm. uh, uh, and you know, an interesting example that I came across the other day for a certain generation, the difference between saying a colored person and a person of color is actually quite subtle, right? So, so the fact that one of them's racist and the other one's mm -hmm. not uh, mm -hmm. is, it, it just, it is just a different way of saying, look, you're too stupid to understand the discourse, therefore you are excluded from this whole mm -hmm. body of conversation. 
what are the processes, what are the institutions that are going to bring people together in a way that where you can say this is a rehabilitating a kind of civil dialogue on these things needs institutions that I'm not sure we, we have yet. And not screaming and jumping down people's throats when they use the wrong words, right? So if we're talking about people who have lesser cognitive capacity and they feel like they don't, that their normal vocabulary is no longer sufficient to engage with other human beings, that's incredibly frightening, right? So you don't know the right words to say and you don't have the right vocabulary, you're essentially excluded from these conversations. And so you can't express your concerns about X, Y, and Z. And I think that's really, really dangerous. And the people who are in a day-to-day way dealing with the very real difficulties of integrating immigrants from different cultures into societies. And, you know, I said that out loud and you're not even supposed to say that out loud, right? There are difficulties in that. That's a real thing. And you should expect there to be, right? Um, if you have an influx of a certain rate, pace of change, different cultures, you know, widely divergent values, unless the government is simultaneously willing to invest in the resources necessary to support those people, and unless people can speak aloud about the process of assimilation and integration and put programs and institutions in place to support that, this is hopeless, right? People don't naturally integrate. People seek others who are very much like themselves and surround themselves with people who you know, eat the same foods and smell the same because they eat the same foods and wear the same stuff and sing the same songs and have the same religion. That's a universal sort of human quality is, is wanting to surround yourself with people who are similar to you. That's, that's just unquestionably where most of us are. And the left just pretends, you know, people on the in left wing of politics pretend that's not who they are, but it is. And if they were honest and took racial color out of it, an ethnic origin out of it and just said, are the people I'm mixing with approximately the same as me? It would be, the answer would be the same as everyone else. Yes, these are approximately the same. Right. And you're just making a fetish of race and colour when in fact that we all know that that's actually not the thing that matters. And is there in that sense a phenomenon that you could sort of describe as a crypto authoritarian personality, which is where you ask people who are actually pretty authoritarian in the way they respond to threats to their liberal, diverse values. You know, they're, I mean, you, you get this, I mean, I'm thinking of the phenomenon, if you're familiar with the FBPE hashtag on Twitter, which is people who are ardently anti-Brexit and are passionately centrist and liberal, uh, and the behaviours they can display within that, the thing that they think is expressing liberal, diverse values and a pushback against nationalism and populism, you know, there is this kind of micro crypto authoritarian expression within that. Yeah. So I, I was going to jump on this when we first talking about left-wing authoritarians. There's kind of two different kinds of what people will often call left-wing authoritarians. And one is the person who's combining liking big government and redistribution with social moral sort of uh, traditional social moral values. That's one kind, like the classic working class authoritarian. And the other one who is committed in an intolerant and dogmatic way to tolerance, um, if you wanted me to just summarize that, what some people might call super work. And to me, there is no distinction, right? So you're, you're in creating another term for it. But to me, I don't even see it that way. And I just stop listening to what people are actually saying. And I think about how they sound and what they're, you know, what's the structure. There's a, there's black and white. There's an enemy. Uh, anyone who disagrees with any facet of the things that we believe in is excluded and expelled. Uh, people are, you know, basically disowned for deviating from, from, you know, the creed. And 
in all respects. That differs in no way whatsoever from people on the far right of politics. And it's, you know, it's the same kind of process that sees Bernie bros in the US flip over to voting for Trump. It's the same kind of thing that, you know, like missionaries, you know, nuns and priests in Latin America sort of switching, you know, to become revolutionaries. There's no, you know, distance between the far left and the far right when you think about it as a structure of beliefs and a structure of disposition instead of the actual content of the of the leaders that you're respecting and refusing to allow critiques of and the values that we all have to share or you're going to be excluded from the moral community. There's no difference. There's no distance between those things at all. There's a connection here, isn't there, between that attachment to the, the sort of moralizing uh, sort of Manichian view of the world and the kind of politics that activates, you know, what you and others and, and Jonathan Haidt in particular talked about in terms of the sacred values, the bits of your belief system that have been so internalized as part of your identity that when people criticize them, it, it's felt as an existential threat and, and people find that very challenging. So, you know, yeah, it seems to us in the UK self-evident that if you don't want people to be getting massacred in schools, you should not sell automatic weapons at the supermarket. But if you come from a position where there's a constitutional rights to bear arms, and that's an expression of your freedom and your patriotism as an American, then you can get in a state where you think regulating you know, sort of gun control is actually unpatriotic and therefore a, a challenge, an accusation that you're not sufficiently American. And it has been posited, I think, very persuasively by hate and others that the kind of center-left liberal moderate bit of politics is particularly bad at finding and activating sacred values Mm-hmm. And then expanding that, growing that out to draw in enough people because they get locked into a kind of technocratic, rationalizing way of doing politics. Mm. I forget who said it. It was a, an American journalist, and I'm just blanking on it at the moment, but he said, um, people on the right of US politics know that the left care about immigrants. They just don't know whether the left cares about Americans. And, you know, I think that that's actually just touches at a fundamental truth. It really does. And it's that unwillingness to, you know, to allow a sense of us and to allow a positive, celebrated, you know, sense of yourself uh, without like immediately flagellating with all the the mistakes and errors of your history. Um, You have to allow people sort of a sense of being proud. You can see how much it matters to a very big chunk of the population. If you don't allow them that, um, you're taking away a really big source of sort of comfort and reassurance. And also you're just ignoring an incredible political opportunity. If you can basically take the MAGA out of it and take Donald Trump out of it and just see what it is, it's a, it's a, you know, a festival. It's a great day out. We're singing and chanting and wearing our clothes and bonding and whatever. And that's all you need to do. And until they're willing to go there, they're always going to be behind the eight ball on this. It's just, they're not going to catch up. And the irony is when it happens, that they, they left gets very excited about it and sees it. So the the, the Olympic opening ceremony in 2012, which was is, is still talked about as this great moment when actually the whole country sort of cheered the formation of the NHS as an emblem of national identity and togetherness. And, and yet they saw it happen and then they don't think, how do we reconstruct that? How do we put that on every year somehow so that actually we're developing a, a, a set of mythologies and rituals and songs and chants or whatever that are actually about out the kind of values mm-hmm. we'd like to expand. I mean, we're, I'm aware of time and there is a couple of important, well, to me, important things that I want to get onto in this. Um, and, and one of them sort of does relate to this question of, of managing and getting over the problem of complexity, uh, which is the tension between sort of representative democracy and direct democracy uh, and the the institutions that shape the way we do politics and how relevant that 
that is. And, and the, the connection, I think, is that the whole essence of representative democracy is contains uh, an appeal to deferred gratification, right? So you can't just have what you want. It's not that simple. There's a kind of almost a paternalistic element in it, which is, look, at some point you're going to elect people. They're the experts. You trust them. They make some choices. If you don't like those choices in four years' time, then put another lot in. Um, but that is how you say outsource mm -hmm. dealing with the complexity to to your representative institutions and populism you know with referendums can come along and say no it's simple hands up if you think everything is rubbish and we'll change it that competition now to define what democracy is seems to be now at the heart of how we move democracy forward so i wonder how much actually literally the voting systems we have the elect the, the way we do elections is as much a part of this as as culture or personality I talk about this quite a lot that, you know, if you think about the US political system, which is, you know, like three um, distinct branches of government, which are set on purpose, eternally sort of in competition with one another, you know, federal government, state government, local government, elections at all of those levels, you know, with great frequency from the top right down to, you know, local dog catcher, school board, et cetera. It's just constant elections and constant voting. And, you know, the, the Americans have a religion of democracy, quite honestly. I mean, most would acknowledge that. And celebrating the extent of politics in their, in their society, it's just monstrous. It's enormous. And that's just way too much political cacophony for, for the regular authoritarians. So there's ways to construct societies and ways to construct institutions that don't fill up that bucket we were talking about before, people's capacity for, for tolerating complexity. And I think the US demands the most in that respect. And I think one of the things that I like about parliamentary democracy is the formal role for the opposition. And the opposition is Her Majesty's loyal opposition. And I think that's really critical. And the idea that it's an alternative government, equally respected, um, and that at a moment's notice that could, you know, flip the other way. And these are also good, decent human beings that we've entrusted to govern. They're governing, you know, they're in the parliament, they're contributing to legislation, they're contributing to debate. And they're the loyal opposition because opposition is part of the deal and that helps the government you know do the best job that it can do and that that's actually a role that's respected I think that's a really critical thing and I think that that's you know far preferable um, in that respect and I think that we don't give enough thought to institutional design from this point of view if we do we're often redesigning institutions so more people have a say and there's more opportunities for input and in fact some of those sort of democratic innovations are things that are taking institutions further away from being things which are acceptable and manageable and that will increase the peace and comfort for you know a very large chunk of the population it's interesting the account you just gave of how the uk parliamentary system works is i think is is great as a praise of what it should be um as opposed to a description of what it's become and it's interesting how mm -hmm. well first of all one of the things that brexit and the referendum did but also i think it's just generally a decay in so much of british constitutional arrangements are about this kind of what we call the good chaps theory of politics you know where because everyone just agrees there are limits and there are certain things one would never say and one would never do. We're sort of all on the same team. We're team British democracy and, and that, you know, that keeps things in order. And then you, you get someone like Boris Johnson who can say, well, no, what happens if I simply ignore that? And the answer is nothing. There are no, there are no guardrails. Uh, and then you get into this sort of zero sum politics, which is if the opposition you know, is trying to be constructive, then the government will just bulldoze them aside because actually, you know, you're with mm -hmm. the people or, or you're against them. And, and, 
the reason I, I wanted to sort of introduce that caveat is because I was struck going back to the Australian election. I'd really like to get you to just talk a little bit about the teals and how important they were, but in the context also of a preferential voting system, which seems to be really important that, you know, there are lots of lessons that mm-hmm. I think you know, the Labour Party might learn. And I think the teals, uh, the segment of people, uh, you know, critically important. They definitely have an equivalent in the UK electorate. I think they're going to be really important in bringing down Boris Johnson if that happens. But you had a preferential Mm -hmm. voting system. And so what's the balance there between those things? I think the preferential voting system is absolutely critical. And I think you can look at different kinds of voting systems and see how they are much more likely to produce conflict. And that's the thing. That's the problem. So the primary system in in the US tends to, at at the primary election, basically reward the most extreme of the candidates, right? So they're the people who win the primary and then they're running against the most extreme version of the other party um, in the general election. And that sort of encourages polarization. That's exactly what we're getting. I'm in just love a lot of features of Australian elections, but in particular preferential voting is is just genius. And it allows people to get, you know, their least worst thing. And it forces all of the parties to pay attention to what other people are offering, even minor parties, because they can win um, balance of power in the lower house and they can, you know, be quite powerful in the Senate because it's proportional. So, I think that preferential voting where people can vote number one for the Greens because they don't think the Labor Party is, is working hard enough and moving fast enough on climate issues, but they really want Labor to govern. Um, and so they'll put Labor second. And if the Greens can't get up on their own right, you know that your vote's going and it's not being wasted. You know, your vote's going to Labor. And, and you can indicate how much you dislike the Liberal National Party by putting them, you know, number six, seven, eight, depending on how many candidates you have in your electorate. And everyone ends up with something that's sort of mostly, you know, acceptable to them. And the composition of the parliament ends up, you know, pretty, you know, less polarized than you would see in other systems. Um, And, you know, very big opportunities for a substantial chunk of the seats to be in the crossbench. And, and which, which basically keeps everybody honest, both sides of politics. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, And so we have the Teals um, in Australia were um, a bunch of women who, if you think of this, think of, um, these two axes. Think of the left, right in the traditional understanding of, of you know, conservative, um, not conservative. And then think of that being crossed like a cross X um, by the authoritarian dimension. And that creates four quadrants, right? So there's two underserved quadrants of that. And the first one we were talking about earlier, which is the working class authoritarianism quadrant, where you're left on the economy, but right on social moral issues. And then there's another quadrant, um, which is, you know, you're right on the issues, but left on social moral things. So you're socially, morally progressive. You don't want the government sticking their nose in everybody's business, you, you know, libertarian on most sort of social moral issues. You don't want to be out there with the racist, but you like the free market. You like, you know, you're pro-business and you generally like, um, you know, free market to be given uh, reign and not have a lot of sort of, you know, government in- interference. And that's basically the teal quadrant. And so what happened is the Liberal Party was moving increasingly far right. And the reason why they were is the National Party, which is kind of the agrarian wing, um, was basically pulling them away from any progress on climate issues basically encouraging all kinds of nonsense in regard to gay rights, abortion, etc. And there's a whole big chunk of people who are well-educated, wealthy, live in urban cosmopolitan areas of Sydney and Melbourne, want to have a free market, happy with all of that, don't want to be you know, lumped together with the racists, don't want to be chasing after the transphobes. And they were all women. So think of a half a dozen women who ran for the 
bluest of the blue ribbon conservative seats in Sydney and Melbourne and basically mounted really strong campaigns in seats which have been solid safest seats in the in the country solid liberal national party forever you know the party you know they they give us the prime minister and the treasurer every year kind of thing it's that kind of you know elite sort of pedigree right and they won those basically and so now they have you know really seriously control um have the balance of power in the parliament and they won that on a platform of listening to the local issues instead of being pushed around by, you know, party leaders, paying attention to stuff on the ground, uh, you know, taking action on climate and not being racist and bigoted, you know, nutcases. What's interesting is you're starting, you're definitely starting to see that here. I mean, that Worcester woman, as it was described in the 90s, but essentially they, these are small C conservative women, largely, who switched from the Tories to Tony Blair and then moved across to David Cameron. And now I think a lot of them are going to vote Liberal Democrat mm-hmm. because, and they are, it's in that space, um, teal as in blue meets green, you know, they are, mm-hmm. they're not attracted to left radicalism but they mm-hmm. just have they, they and i mean there's men as well obviously you know but um who are they 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 get that visceral recoil from the mm-hmm. pungency of the the nationalist populism mm-hmm. and and i think that's a big problem for for boris johnson and and that really because we're running out of time that's something going right back to where we were earlier in this conversation about the weird, must be quite unstable, ultimately, coalition that was Brexit. And I think also a little bit that the Trump phenomenon of actually very hyper-individualist libertarian conservatives who've come out of the sort of the 90s radical conservatism, mm-hmm. who sort of saddled up the tiger of actually bits of left populism, economic nationalism, mm-hmm. uh, and formed this populist movement. And you know, with a promise of this sort of carnival of disorder, setting mm-hmm. fire to everything so you can build a better Britain out the other side of it. it. It seems to me that at some point that coalition can't hold. And these people that we're talking about, that teal proposition is going is potentially mm-hmm. the wedge that can prize mm-hmm. that apart and say, you know what, you actually are offering two totally mutually contradictory things here mm-hmm. and it can't hold. It was when I was de- describing the differences between con- conservatism and authoritarianism. Remember, I was saying there's no natural affinity between people who, who want you know the government to get their nose out of the market, um, and and likewise want the government to keep their nose out of people's social and moral choices. And you know that's a natural affinity. And this weird combination that we've you know we've had on the left right spectrum for so long. One of the things I want people to understand is that the fact that certain things go together in your politics doesn't mean they go together in people's heads, in their psychology. And that is the thing that will win in the end. And the coalitions that you're forming on the ground to win power must actually meet the fundamental needs that people have or they're over. And, you know, there's no natural affinity between people who are fascist, racist, et cetera, transphobes, and people who simply want the government to stay out of the market, want, you know, who are in favor of free market. And that's a power cabal. That's an attempt to win and keep power. And that cannot go on. And it certainly can't go on if the left starts doing a much better job of attracting the kinds of people that in the last election voted for the Teals in Australia, winning back the left-wing authoritarian by sounding 
you know, oneness and sameness without, you know, verging into racism and thinking about what basic human beings need. You know, I'm, I don't mean to sound derogatory with basic, but, you know, I want to know what the boundaries of my country are. I want to know who's coming in and how we're like, you know, what's happening to them. Where do they go once they get here? Are they going to take my job? You know, and I want to know that I'm going to be all right, that I'm going to be housed, I get a job, it's not going to be taken away from me. I want to know what the hell is this trans thing about? What's cisgender? I don't even understand. If the Labor Party takes that challenge seriously of finding a way to talk to those people who aren't at their core for the most part racist, they're differences, and that's a very, very different thing. You know, differencism is not racism and you can pull those people back. They can be, you know, they're very collective oriented. They're very other regarding. They're obsessed with us, right? And you can change the boundaries of us. And practically my entire life is, a devi- you know, devising messages that reduce normative threat normative reassurance and changing messages that change the boundaries of us. So if you find people who are heavily invested in the idea of us and you expand the boundaries of us, then all of the privilege and, and affection that they used to, you know, spend on us and exclude for them is now being invested in, and sprinkled on a larger group of people. So you just take the stuff that's already in people and you make it work for you instead of going, you people must die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we must triumph over you, triumph over you and expel you and you must be expelled from the moral community. Uh, you have to take the stuff that's already in them, the good things, and, and basically turn that to your purposes. And in terms of that message, I mean, you talk about the message that will achieve that, uh, you know, being blunt about it, how much is really the messenger? And, you know, look at someone like, you know, I was watching videos of uh, Albanese and, you know, a, a bit like Joe Biden, what he manages to achieve is just physically and the way he expresses himself looking basically a, an old white bloke. Yeah. And automatically there he's somehow managing to reach out to a whole bunch of people and it's not comfortable for the sort of center left to go well maybe that's actually part of the message too Mm -hmm. you know and and you know we've managed to brilliantly not get bogged down in the question of charisma and leadership but you know frankly looking at the current labor party i think charisma and leadership are an important part of the picture and something that currently feels a bit deficient i think um charisma and leadership but also I think that's part of it. You just want someone attractive and appealing that you can be proud of and that you're saying the right words and you're really drawn to them. And some people just have the capacity to speak to people in that way. And that's really essential. But what's underneath that as well um, is authenticity. And so uh, anyone who's ever met Anthony Albanese will tell you he's just the kindest, nicest, most genuine, loving, caring, good human being you ever met. And that he spent his whole life working on behalf of labor unions, you know, you know, workers' rights, et cetera. And people come up with, you know, same with Biden. People come up with stories about meeting him with your mother and, you know, 10 years ago and you were, you know, blah, 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 getting kicked out of your apartment and he actually took it on and, and helped. So he's got, everyone's got stories like that. And so he comes across as a really genuine human. A really important part of that is not talking in sound bites. So if you sort of stop thinking of politics as this separate domain and just think of it as normal life, all of us have well-developed capacities to weed out the sociopaths. And women in particular are good at weeding out the sociopaths. And somehow we switch that off in politics, except the teals actually really address that, right? And so everybody's, you know, the Crosby textile kind of 
getting in the habit of let's focus group this, find out what people are saying, form that into a couple of 90, you know, 10 second sort of sound bites and we'll practice that. Nobody's good at that. They sound completely inauthentic and everybody knows that. You, you might not be able to articulate it, but you can feel it. I don't trust this person, right? And there's a really big yearning for somebody that you can trust and you want to trust them because you just want to go back to your life. Yeah. So what many people have been saying about Albanese is I'm not vigilantly monitoring the news all day long, worrying what disaster they, they're doing in my name to immigrants, for example. I know he's a kind, good human being. They're all very competent because they've been in opposition for 10 years and they've been forming their ministries and becoming, you know, expert at their various uh, things. And, you know, I can go back to my life and I know that this is a fundamentally decent human being. And so one of the things I say is you, you basically need to fill up your political parties, all of your candidates, more than half of them should be women. If you want to see how the female stereotype walk, works in favor of women is women generally are credited with greater integrity and honesty and obviously uh, caring. Um, and so at a moment when people don't trust those bastards anymore and, you know, the Boris Johnson kind of thing, this, uh, I won't say it, but, you know, like that guy, he's not in it for us. And, you know, yeah. a, a, a local woman candidate that you know, she's a decent human being, you have a trust that women are basically honest and caring, That's that cleans it up. And it also somehow because politics has always been a man's game and you know what that looks like, women just take you out of that common spectrum. It just takes you out of your normal way of viewing things. So you can just step away from that and explore some of those other kinds of quadrants that we were talking about before that are currently underserved. Yeah, this is the Merkel proposition, isn't it? And it was so effective yeah. for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting what, you, what, you know, what you've just described, I think is so, I mean, that is has got to be an essential part of, of the, the labor recipe going forward is, is that saying that we can give you your life back from politics because you, know, you mentioned the Crosby Texter phenomenon, you know, Linton Crosby, his acolytes are embedded in Downing Street. They've been serving the conservative, you know, aggressive grievance mining machine now for the best part of a decade. And it's worked up to a point, but it's so poisoned and polluted the discourse of British politics that mm -hmm. I think the cycle must now be close to the point where you can beat them by saying, yeah. stop doing this to my politics. It's not nice. These aren't the people. This isn't the country we are. This isn't the country we want to be. You know, just stand up and say things like, these aren't good human beings. You know that. You can feel it yourself, right? You know that these people aren't here for you. Stand up and start just having normal human conversations like that instead of, you know, <laughs> um, focus group sound bites, which everybody now recognizes. You're just rabbiting off something someone told, you know, some campaign consultant told you. So authentic human beings that are clearly, you know, palpably real and honest and many more women because they skip they skip the normal spectrum. People can think of, imagine them in different ways than the left-right spectrum and because they have a reputation of being honest and caring and you get yourself out of this, this just nightmare that we're stuck in at the moment. And for the love of God, the left has to start talking about oneness and sameness. I don't care what they call it, but use all of that language and use all of those ideas and understand that a whole chunk of humanity is drowning here. And you're not throwing them any kind of lifeline and you're just calling them bigots and racists and saying, expelling them from your moral community. And if you keep doing that, they're never coming back. But at the moment, all they're being fed is rage and fear. And at a certain point, that's not what they're in it for. They're in it for going back to their own lives. They don't want to be there of fear and rage constantly. And so you create something comforting um, on your side of politics and you use the right language and not insincerely. 
I mean, these things are necessary. It's not insincere. You do need to build identity. You do need shared values and they need to come around to seeing that. That's been fantastic. You've given us so much of your time and covered so much that I wanted to talk about and you've elucidated it so well. And all that remains for me to do is to encourage everyone to read what you've written. And if Keir Starmer and the Labour leadership happen to be listening to this podcast, take some of it on board and integrate it into your messaging, please. Um, And thank you. No, I really appreciate it. I love having the opportunity to talk about it. If any of your listeners want more information, there's a lot of stuff on karensterner.com and also ways to contact me. So there's there's contact forms on my website as well. And I'm happy to take questions uh, if people want to pursue the discussion further. Fantastic. Thank you. We, we try and finish this podcast on an optimistic note, don't we, Phil? And there was there was there were optimistic things there, I think, in terms of neutralising the authoritarian dynamic. Are you feeling that, Phil? So now that Boris Johnson has gone or is on the way out, then uh, that's a potentially positive sign. Although it does really depend on who succeeds him. Well, okay, that's another podcast, Phil. So so we'll we'll go. Uh, we had a little bit of that podcast. Oh, the timing is all a bit confused, isn't it? We recorded the emergency podcast before this podcast. Anyway, our very smart listeners can entirely disentangle the chronology of what was recorded when and are hopefully enjoying it all and sharing it. That we have to keep saying that, don't we? It's very important that you share it and review it and like it and all those things that you do. But thank you, everyone, for listening. Attentive listeners will re- will have noticed that we haven't produced very many of these recently, uh, and that's because I've been writing a book, and you will definitely all be hearing a lot more about that uh, when it gets published next spring, because I will be mercilessly and relentlessly self-publicising in a way that might probably get a bit nauseating and I apologize in advance for that but apparently that's what you have to do with these things uh but I have to disappear like the submarine going under the water I have to um, make myself invisible to the podcasting audience while I frantically do the edits on this manuscript I was going to ask you a couple of quick questions about your um book but I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you or whether you'll even you can ask me a couple of questions about my book please do I can do and it's yeah this counts as pre-publicity yeah so when when will it be finished that's a terrible question to ask anyone who's writing a book uh no <laughs> special treat for politics on the couch listeners I'll tell you a little bit about the book it's a book uh, about uh, how to stay engaged in politics without getting enraged. And it's a little bit of the history of the last few years of politics and Brexit, a little bit of the history of the last 30 years of politics and more or less all the time that I've been alive uh, trying to follow what goes on in this crazy country, uh, a little bit of the time I spent covering politics in Russia and a little bit of just m- my feelings of what's gone wrong what made politics so toxic, some of the stuff you'll have encountered in this podcast uh, and hopefully some new stuff as well. So, uh, you know, if that appeals at all, um, buy my book, share my book um, uh, when I've written it. And in answer to your actual question, Phil, uh, I have to deliver the manuscript in about six weeks time. So that's why I won't be recording podcasts. uh, And hopefully by then it will be done. So that six weeks is is perfect then for the summer sojourn with you probably being back just in time for your favourite time of year, the party conferences, which I know you love to go to and really revel in and enjoy. Yeah, Um, I just really love immersing (laughs) myself in sort of horrible, dry, crusty sandwiches and airless conference rooms with crazy people. The Tory one might actually be almost entertaining this year. Uh, uh, but no, it'll be it, it, depressing as well, I imagine. So the less said about that, about it. Let's, let's enjoy the fact that we're not there yet.
And that six-week period also is, is, is a time to bury yourself completely away from the leadership contest with the Tory party. So that would be a good excuse not to follow it. Um, the, what, the what contest of the what party, Phil? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Bringing this episode to a conclusion then. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I'll see you uh, later on in the summer, or you'll hear from me later on in the summer. And um, thank you, Raf, and, and good luck with your manuscript. And thank you, Phil. Great. Good. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.